Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your <coughs> Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. To another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. This is, after all, an experiment in conversation. Today it'll be a conversation with myself. Um, we might call that a monologue. We're going to do part two, which was an unexpected part two, of uh, an episode I did a few weeks back called Nothing Matters with Alan Watts. So you guys remember I got introduced to Alan Watts. After Kyle suggested that I listen to him many times over the past few years, finally did blew my mind. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of people that have done that to me lately. Uh, Ian McGilchrist being one of them, uh, Peter Shirsted Hughes being another, David Chalmers. I mean, just the list goes on and on. Um, and Alan Watts was no exception. And just to refresh your memory, what Alan Watts, we basically listened to two different Watts lectures. And then we picked from both lectures a whole bunch of stuff that he was um, talking about relating to nothingness. What is nothingness? And Alan Watts argued that nothing is sort of a misnomer. That that word is something that we use and we think it means something like non-existence. But the model is wrong. And in reality, nothing happens to be something. And it's something critical something that we can't live without. And there's all these examples about, um, for instance, right now, as I'm speaking, the words are something. And the silence in between the words, you might call nothing. At least it's not speech. But you see, you don't have speech without the no speech in between that punctuates the words. Otherwise, everything I say blends together. You can't make heads or tails of what what I'm saying to you. The same thing is true with music. See, it's the silence in between the notes. It's the timing and the spaces that make it music. Without that, it's just a deafening, buzzing, you know, uh, conglomeration of noise. You wouldn't call it music at all. And so you see that there's there's something critically important about the nothing that makes the something what it is. And nothing and something are are opposites. And going back to McGilchrist, which I mentioned a second ago, Ian McGilchrist made this beautiful analogy about how how opposites he says that there is a coincidence of opposites always and only they occur together and because that's true you don't have nothing without something you don't have light without dark you don't have hot without cold because you don't have one without the other they are effectively one thing and this resonates with me so deeply it resonates with this mystical intuition that i've developed um and it goes back to the idea of the Ouroboros, which we talk about when we talk about mythology all of the time. 
that this symbol that, that rests at the heart of our mythological stories about the creation of the cosmos, cross-culturally, has to do with the symbol of the unity of opposites, yin and the yang brought together in, in a unity. Um, in the Sumerian myth that we talk about from time to time, it's Tiamat and Apsu, the male and the female, the goddess of salt water, the god of fresh water. They're one thing. They're both God. They're both water. But they're opposites, the salt and the fresh, the feminine and the masculine. And they have to come together in this symbol, this Ouroboros, um, that shows us this generative um, generative union of opposites, the thing from which creation emerges, the thing from which something emerges. And Jordan Peterson calls that the chaos. And the something that emerges is the order. And the order is what we call, well, everything that we call a thing has they, they're tied to something like order, whether we're talking about music, whether we're talking about uh, language, whether we're talking about culture. Um, and so this idea of coincidence of opposites and the opposites being one thing has been really interesting. And when I, shortly after I finished those Alan Watts lectures, and I told Kyle this, I had a bunch of Audible credits. So I went on Audible and I picked a book. You can imagine why I picked a book. It's called The God Equation. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I'm interested in God. I'm interested in physics. Let's see what's going on here. This is a book published in 2021 by a gentleman most people will probably recognize. His name is Michio Kaku. Uh, he's a physicist. He's one of these popular culture physicists like a Brian Greene or a Sean Carroll. Um, he talks about physics in documentaries and uh, you know interviews, and he makes it... Um, makes sense to the common man, and uh, I appreciate that. You know, like a Neil deGrasse type type person. Um, but this book, the God Equation, it's also subtitled "The Quest for the Theory of Everything." It um, it has bits that focus on nothingness, not the whole thing, but it has bits in the beginning and then a lot towards the end, especially when he gets talking about Stephen Hawking and black holes. Um, the vacuum becomes very important, and from a the perspective of physics, from the perspective of cosmology, um, space, the vacuum of space is nothing. And I want to remind you before we jump into this that Alan Watts had some interesting things to say about that also, about space, about the emptiness of space. Alan Watts said that, he made two analogies, he said when, you, when you're writing something down on a piece of paper, let's say it's white paper, black ink, you're writing something down on the paper and you think to yourself, the writing is the thing. That's what Alan Watts says. The, the letters, the words, that's the thing. That's where the information is. That's what's important, right? We would agree. If I'm writing black words on a white piece of paper, the words are the thing. And the thing is what we're interested in. But then he points out that the paper, in this case the empty space the, the behind the letters, the thing that allows the letters to stand out, that contrast them, that the thing that allows those letters to be there, the page, the empty page, that's the nothing that is required for the something, in this case the letters and words, to be present. And he makes the same analogy with outer space. He says, you look up at the night sky, you look up at the stars, and you think, ah, those are the things, the planets and stars, those are the things that are out there amidst the nothingness. I think we all pretty much agree with that. But then he makes the same analogy. But you see, the vacuum of space, the nothingness in between all of the stars and planets is necessary 
or else those things we think are important, the stars and planets out there, don't exist. There's no place for them to exist. So you need the empty page for the letters. You need the emptiness of space for the stars and planets to exist. And we can't have one without the other. We need the nothing to have the something. We need the something to have the nothing. And so it's important to understand that that something and nothing are functionally one thing. Now Michio Kaku is going to use those exact same arguments, but he's going to do it empirically, which I think is so great. I think that Michio Kaku saying the things he said in this book, The God Equation, complements what Alan Watts said in those lectures that I, that I uh, covered in my Nothing Matters with Alan Watts episode. So what we have here is for all those haters out there, for all those people who think Alan Watts is an uh, eloquent speaker, but not somebody who you can put any sort of scientific um, uh, confidence in. He's not somebody that you're going to look to for, you know, scientific or empirical um, fact or truth. No, you're going look to look, look to him for poetry. You're going to look to him for, you know, warm and fuzzy feelings, whatever. Um, and I think that's uh, short-sighted. I think that's a shame. But there are people out there like that. They just want the facts, sir, and nothing more. Very empirically minded people. So Michio Kaku being, <coughs> I can scarcely think of a better person to bring that perspective to the table. He's going to do this. So without further ado, I'm going to jump into it. So how I want to maybe open this up is to say that this is going to be called Nothing Matters with Michio Kaku. So it was not intended to be a two-part series, but that's what it became serendipitously. And I, you know, that's fine by me. So this, you can call this one the follow-up to Nothing Matters with Alan Watts, which focused on philosophical, metaphysical, logical explanations of what nothingness means, contrary to our most basic intuition. So all those things I just, I just mentioned, that nothing is actually very important, and nothing serves very important purposes. And without nothing, something cannot exist. So nothing, we, we can use that word all day long if we want to, but the thing is, nothing is a thing, a very important thing. Maybe the most important thing. Now, Kaku's book takes a different approach. It's a discussion of the, dis of the discoveries that lead up to the notion of a theory of everything. So if you guys don't know what that means, the idea from quantum physics is that you've got uh, general relativity um, that describes... Uh, uh, you know Einstein's theory of gravity, and then you've got quantum mechanics, which which developed kind of alongside it. Uh, so you've got rules that govern the largest scale, uh, math mathematics that govern the largest scale of of what you know what we can measure in physics, and then you've got mathematics that governs the very smallest scale. And there's no, really not, not a way of reconciling them together. So physicists have been trying to do that for a very long time. Um, string theory is, we'll talk a little bit about that today. Uh, that may be the most popular, it may be uh, the most promising um, path towards a, um, uh, a unified theory, but really we're not anywhere close to that. But this book is going to talk about leading up to, uh, you know, developing this theory of everything, going all the way to uh, Stephen Hawking, and then all of like the milestones that were progress that we made uh, over the years. So I'm not going to focus too much on that, but just know that that's the, kind of the main theme of the book if you see it popping up here and there in the quotes. Um, but in order for them to get to this exploration of the theory of everything, 
Michio Kaku has to delve into this idea of nothingness from the perspective of physics. And this is why it's such a great compliment. I think it serves as a terrific empirical compliment to the remarks of Watts on the same subject, nothingness. It shows us how Watts's philosophical perspective are reflected in the natural world with the full backing of our most sophisticated scientific models of reality. So we can call this the, the math and the science, the hard science that backs up all of the flowery poetry that we got from Alan Watts. That brings me to the first section, which I'm going to call infinity and the vacuum, all and nothing. So the first quote opens like this. When scientists calculated the radiation emitted from hot, vibrating atoms, the result defied expectations. At high frequency, the energy of light should eventually become infinite, which was ridiculous. To a physicist, infinity is just a sign that the equations aren't working, that they don't understand what is happening. Okay, so this is interesting. So just to open this up, what I want to try to explain here is that when there were various times through this uh, progress towards the theory of, of everything where the math, which I don't understand well, so I'm going to tiptoe around this as best I can, um, the math supporting these, these uh, ideas included what the scientists considered to be flaws, where they were coming up with infinity as a solution. And so in physics, um, this is apparently a sign of a problem. You know, all of the mathematics should work out, uh, you know, should work out to some finite uh, resolution or multiple finite resolutions. Not, not infinity, not infinite solutions. That, that's a strange thing. So, um, so there's something like this that they're dealing with. And they found this result when they were studying the vibration of atoms. And they're studying kind of the most fundamental, um, you know, physical properties. The math was turning up all kinds of strange things. It was making it impossible for the physicists to go to go further. And the, what the book explains is how they worked around this was they they were able to offset the infinities with other infinities. So I don't exactly understand that, but they were able to kind of make the formulas progress or move forward by offsetting these infinities that they thought were were problems. So I want to focus a bit on infinity for a second, because, because I think the word infinity gives us the opposite um, pole to this idea of nothingness that, we, that we're going to talk about. Infinity depends on how you apply the word, I guess, but infinity sort of represents the all, everything. And it's infinite. It includes everything, right? So infinity is like the everything. And you can see how the everything is opposite of the nothing. That makes sense. So this is the framework that I want to try to, I want to try to move forward with. This idea of infinity represents the all, the everything, in contrast to this idea that we're trying to understand that you know nothingness. And we when we understand from what I said at the opening that everything and nothing are opposites, and there's a coincidence of opposites. They only exist together. So that's very important. They're basically one thing. They're functionally one thing. How is it that everything and nothing are one thing? So let's talk about this. So there's a coincidence of opposites, which implies a unity, because you can't have one without the other. 
We can see the truth of this when we consider examples like, let's say, all the colors that are possible. If you take them all at once, if you take all the colors together all at once, what you get is no color at all. So how is it that all the colors taken together become no color? Where did the color go? You know, if I'm mixing colors of paint together, I'm going to mix and mix and mix until I end up with black. If I mix wavelengths of light together, all the, all the different colors of light will, will blend together to become white. So in the case of paint, black. In the case of white, light. In either case, I'm left with none of the colors I started with. All of the colors are blended together in this white light or black pigment, whatever it might be. So you have no color in all colors having some sort of equivalency. How about this? Try to imagine all possible experiences. And maybe start with all the experiences you've ever had. And then you expand that to all experiences anybody has ever had, living or dead. And maybe you expand that to all the experiences that, you know, plants and other animals are having, or even that the atoms have, if you think they have experience, which I think they probably do. All of these layers of experience for all of the history of time. Imagine all that if you can. You can't, but, you know, try. Imagine all those experiences now happening at once. They would blend together to become no particular experience. And so there would be no experience at all. They would be unexperienceable. So all of the experiences taken together are no experience at all. One more example. Take a circle. Imagine it. By definition, what is it? It's a couple definitions. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a shape from which all the points are equal distant from the center. It's a mathematical definition of a circle. But another one is this. A circle is a shape that has an infinite number of sides. Hmm. Imagine that. Let's start with a triangle. And hold that triangle in your mind's eye. And then shift that triangle, turn it into a square in your mind's eye. Now add, add more sides and turn it into a hexagon or a pentagon or an octagon. Keep adding sides. Keep adding them. Continue, continue, continue as that shape becomes ever closer to a circle. When it has infinite sides, it has no sides. Isn't that interesting? A circle is a shape with an infinite number of sides. And an infinite number of sides means no sides at all. Everything and nothing are synonyms. They're functionally equivalent what do you think of that? I know it's a little mind-blowing, but this is going to be important as we move along. Okay, quote number two, he says, Kaku says, Experiments on electrons showed they vanished and reappeared somewhere else, which is impossible in a Newtonian world. So this bit of the book is talking about quantum, the beginning of quantum physics and the things that they were starting to uh, encounter in their experiments that they couldn't explain that were contrary to the laws of physics that they believed were true up to that point, the Newtonian, Newtonian physics. And one of the things they noticed is that electrons appear and vanish from nowhere. You have an electron appears in a system and disappears. And like, what in the, what in the world is going on? Physics is all about forces and motion and cause and effect and angles and all this stuff, friction and all that. So what's going on here? 
There's only one world. You can't have something from nothing. So what's going on here? And this was this is what baffled people in the early days of quantum physics, what baffles people today. So in this example, where electrons pop into existence from and where they disappear into. It's like one thing to say they, they appear and reappear, or vanish and reappear. It's one thing to say that. But it's another thing to ask, where do they go? Did they disappear into some place? Did they change their state of existence? Did they move into another realm? It, it, clearly they didn't just disappear because they've reappeared. So did they just not have existence and suddenly have existence? Or did they, did they go somewhere else? And so the question is, when, when an electron disappears into nothingness, is nothingness a, a place? Or if it disappears into nothingness, is nothingness another state of being, another state of existence that's not what we commonly understand as this material, physical plane? Things don't just disappear and reappear. They might move to some place or shift in some, you know, some manner that makes them undetectable. But does that mean that they were poof gone and poof here? Or does it mean that what we're calling nothing is actually something? Maybe a place, maybe a, a different state of existence. And that brings us to our first uh, piece about Hawking. So Kaku says, Hawking began to think the idea that nothing can escape a black hole violated the quantum theory. So now again, we're changing subjects, but it's important here because Hawking was very concerned with black holes, very interested in black holes, what they were, um, how they formed, um, you know, what they did. Um, they were mysterious objects. They're the only thing we've ever seen which, which, which has gravity so strong that light can't seem to escape. It sucks everything in, even, even light. And yet, a black hole is something, is something synonymous to a vacuum, something synonymous to the vacuum of space. It's not really a difference between the vacuum of space, the nothingness in between the stars, and a black hole. Apart from the fact that the black hole has tremendous gravity, all sort of isolated in, in one spot. So we're talking about nothingness, and Hawking was very interested in that. The vacuum of space, the black hole, nothingness. And the more he thought about this, the more he, the more he thought, even though black holes seem to suck everything in, even light, there's something there that seems wrong. Because at the quantum level, there's this thing called quantum uncertainty. It's like a rule that governs reality at the deepest level. And quantum uncertainty doesn't seem to allow for a black hole to be perfectly black. So it goes on. He says, in quantum mechanics, everything is uncertain. A black hole looks perfectly black because it absorbs absolutely everything. But perfect blackness violated the uncertainty principle. Even blackness had to be uncertain. Hawking came to the revolutionary conclusion that black holes must necessarily emit a very faint glow of quantum radiation. He calculated this by realizing that the vacuum was not just the state of nothingness, but was actually bubbling with quantum activity. In the quantum theory, even nothingness is in a state of constant churning uncertainty. 
where electrons and anti-electrons could suddenly jump out of the vacuum, then collide and disappear back into the vacuum. So I want to hone in on a couple things here. Hawking, right, according to Hawking, the vacuum, Kaku says, was not just the state of nothingness, but was actually bubbling with quantum activity. So the thing that we call nothing is bubbling with quantum activity. How is that possible? If nothing were nothing, as we generally intuit the meaning, there wouldn't be activity. There would be nothing. And yet there is. So the vacuum of space, the nothingness out there, isn't nothing at all. It is something, something that is capable of sustaining activity. Activity in what? In the nothing. What does that mean? Fuck if I know. But there's activity happening in the nothing. And that means the nothing is something, something capable of action, something capable of activity. Then he says, in quantum theory, in a state of nothingness, electrons and anti-electrons pop out of the vacuum. What does that mean? They jump out of nothingness. They collide and disappear back into nothingness. So nothingness is full of quantum activity. And it seems to be a place or a transitionary plane from which, from which electrons, quantum particles, can emerge from nothing. Now this is something that we've believed since the days of Aristotle, if not before, that nothing can't, can't well, excuse me, something cannot come from nothing. And what Hawking and Kaku are telling us is that that is not true. Classical philosophy tells us you have to start with something, and that might change into something else, but you don't start with nothing and get something. It doesn't work that way. Like begets like. It's another, another law from, from ancient philosophy. So how can nothing create something? According to quantum physics, that's exactly what happens. So, again, I want to point out that something from nothing is a, is a representation of opposites. Something and nothing. Opposites. And they only exist in opposition to each other. They have this mutual, you know, dependence for their existence. Now, when these electrons and anti-electrons that pop out of the nothingness, when they unite, they, they annihilate, they disappear back into the nothingness. And what that implies, you've got these two... These two particles with different charges, let's say, that, that pop up together, also opposites. Remember, electron and anti-electron, they're also opposites. They pop up together out of the nothingness. They exist momentarily. And then when they recombine, they disappear again. And that has implications, strange implications. That if you take nothing and you split it in two, you get something. You started with the nothingness of the vacuum. If you split that nothing in two and you have you split it into opposites, you have a you have an anti-electron and an electron. It seems like by merit of the fact that they've been separated, they now exist. And the moment they come back together, they don't exist anymore. It's something about separation that makes them real. And then reunification makes them disappear. And it's strange because it reminds me of, again, 
our earliest religious stories about the creation of the cosmos. If we could just go to the Bible, for instance, we can see that everything in the Bible, in the creation story, is separated from a wholeness. So you begin with something like the Ouroboros, you know, something like God. And you separate the heavens from the earth. You separate the, the waters. You separate the, you know, the... Um, uh, you separate woman from man, even with with Eve being made from Adam. So all of the all of the symbolism is of separation. We separate things into being, and and I get this idea, I get this image of of God as being the everything, the everything all at once. Something that I call potentiality, the thing from which all things can emerge. It's the potential, the source of potential. And if it's infinite, if it's everything all at once, remember I I talked about that example of all experiences all at once. Imagine something like that. You don't really have anything. But the moment you start separating out pieces of that potential, you know, the moment you start separating out uh, individual experiences, then you have something. But it requires separation. And this is exactly what we hear in our earliest myths. And it's exactly what we hear from Stephen fucking Hawking when he describes electrons and anti-electrons somehow making their way from the nothingness, whatever that means, in crossing that plane from nothing to somethingness, existing in the space and time, in our material world, in this divided way, in this separated way. And when they come back together, they disappear. They go back into the nothingness. And the last line from this quote is, so nothingness was actually frothing with quantum activity. Nothingness is frothing with quantum activity. That tells you that what we call nothingness is not nothing. All right, so we talk about uncertainty a little bit. I want to point out that uncertainty has to do with um, this idea of of a probability wave collapsing into a particle. So this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but just so you know, when he's talking about uncertainty being being something that's kind of built into reality and, and, and you know, it's unavoidable, this has to do with the idea that particles at the quantum level exist as a, as a wave. And, and quantum physicists and physicists of all kinds will tell you that the most basic fundamental level of reality is something like quantum waves. So reality at the deepest level is something like waves. And waves are strange. You know, it's it's hard to put any sort of point on a wave. Imagine you drop a little pebble into a into a pond and you can see the waves rippling out. It's hard to put any point on that wave and think that you've um that you've isolated it, that you've pointed it out, that you've put a marker on it that that tells you anything about the wave because it's just one little spot on a wave that's continuously moving and you've got new and new waves forming from the inside all the time. It's like, what are you pointing to exactly? Are you pointing to the wave? I mean, kind of yes, kind of no. Um, And then there's this idea that, that certainty in the world is the result of the wave itself collapsing into into some sort of certain reality so a wave becomes a particle and that particle has reality in the way that we're sort of accustomed to it it has a certain position a certain momentum you know it works the way that newtonian physics you know uh, would have us believe so you've got some level of certainty but the thing is you can't you can't 
pull a particle from a wave or a wave from a particle. They're really one thing. Also, also from the perspective of physics, they're opposites. Waves and particles are opposites. And just like any set of opposites, they're, they're, they're coincident. You can't have one without the other. So this is where un- quantum uncertainty comes in. It's like, how can I say a particle is here and moving in this speed in this direction when in reality it's a wave moving in all directions? You see what I mean? All right, so this brings me to the last quote in this section, which goes like this. Uh, And I believe he's still continuing to talk about Hawking here. He says, he realized that if if the gravitational field was intense enough, electron and anti-electron pairs could be created out of the vacuum. Okay, so again, now we're talking specifically about um, black holes and not just the vacuum of space, a particular type where we have all this gravity. But what I want to point out to you about this is when Hawking says if the gravitational field was intense enough, then you could have something being created from nothing. Then you could have electrons and anti-electrons just jumping out of the nothingness. So you, you, you know the energy required for this to happen seems to be coming from gravity. Now the black the black hole is something that's often it's called a singularity, and it has a connection to the beginning of our cosmos because we call the Big Bang a singularity. So there's this. There's this commonality between what's happening in a black hole and uh, what what kicked off our, our the creation of our of our universe. And what I like to think of when I think about the Big Bang is um, the example that I've been using throughout this so far is like you can imagine rolling back the clock of time and and everything kind of rewinding. And what happens is the expansion of the universe will slowly come back together to that moment of the Big Bang. And what you end up with is all the matter and energy uh, of the cosmos condensed down into a singularity, condensed down into a, a unity. And, that, and you can imagine if everything that exists, all space and time, energy and matter, if all that stuff's been condensed down to a very, very minute speck, imagine the gravity Imagine the, imagine the mass, the energy, the gravity that's created from that singularity. I mean, it's maybe it's infinite. I don't know. And from that singularity can emerge something out of nothing. Now, Hawking is saying that happens in a black hole. And you can see that with, which we're going to get to, but Hawking radiation radiation that that you that we can now detect um, just bleeding off of black holes that they really are giving off energy they're giving off something even though we previously never thought that was possible and that analogy holds true for the big bang for that singularity as well so we got we got something from nothing and what we mean by nothing in this example, what we mean by this singularity, if we want to call it nothing, is everything all at once, right? Everything that's unfolded in the cosmos, rolled back up into one thing. That nothing, that thing that we're calling nothing, is everything all at once. The potential for everything that ever ever will be or ever was. And so you have this strange paradox where something and nothing are functionally equivalent Okay, that brings me to dark energy and dark matter. And that's what I'm going to call this section, dark energy and dark matter. I want to talk about this, not because I think it necessarily directly 
corresponds to this idea of the vacuum or the black hole, but it is a mystery. It was covered in the book, and in my opinion, dark energy and dark matter, and you'll see as we go through this, there's a reasonable reason or a reasonable way of talking about these things as nothing. In, in the way that we've been talking about so far. Because nothing definitely definitely doesn't seem to mean nothing. It means something. We, haven't, we, don't, we don't quite know what that means. But we know it means something. One of the things it means is something that exists in a way that's completely different from, from our ordinary understanding of the physical cosmos. It's not that it doesn't ex- have existence. It does. But that existence doesn't seem to be material. It doesn't seem to be subject to space and time in the same way that everything else is. It doesn't seem to be subject to the same laws of physics as everything else. And with the, with the example of dark energy and dark matter, you have something that's not visible, so it's essentially undetectable. That's not entirely true, but um, you know, invisible, undetectable, um, that doesn't interact with, with matter in the physical world in any way that we really understand. I mean, we talk about, and we will talk about, how dark energy and dark matter are responsible for kind of the stasis of the cosmos, the way that, the way that it's expanding and the way that it exists. But those are like facts that we, that we piecemeal out from what we observe um, in, in nature. We really have no great understanding of what dark energy and dark matter is. And because we can't give it reality, we can't prove its reality in the same way we can with the rest of physical, the physical world, there's a way in, that, in which we can look at dark energy and dark matter in the same way we look at the vacuum. It's nothing, and yet it's something. So let's talk about dark energy and dark matter for a second. Kaku reminds us, he says, what might be driving the expansion of the universe is the energy of the vacuum, now called dark energy. Okay, so we know from from the previous paragraphs that the vacuum is bubbling and frothing with quantum activity. So the nothingness out there has got all this activity. Now, now what Kaku's telling us is that the, the force that that creates is somehow responsible for the expansion of the universe. And for those people who don't know, um, science has determined uh, using a redshift and tricks with light that the galaxies and stars all around us are moving away from us all the time. And they're moving faster and faster the further they, get, they go. And so the universe is expanding like somebody blowing up a balloon. And we don't exactly know why. We don't exactly know if it will ever stop. You know, we don't know. But the force causing that we call dark energy. And this is the force of energy in the vacuum, in the nothingness. Kaku says, the amount of dark energy in the universe is enormous. More than 68.3% of all energy in the universe is in this mysterious form. He says, collectively, dark energy and dark matter comprise most of the matter and energy. This cannot be explained by any known theory. There you go. This cannot be explained by any known theory. So most of the energy and matter that make up the world is in this mysterious form that we can't exactly prove. We don't seem to know much about 
or anything at all about, to be frank. And there's one thing I want to point out here that I think is interesting as well. When he says more than 68.3% of the matter or of the energy in the universe is dark energy, I want you to understand that there's an asymmetry there. 68.3 is more than half, right? So there's an asymmetry between energy and dark energy. And this is something that's important um, because when you consider the opposites, you know, you might consider energy and dark energy to be opposites, let's say. It's true that they're coincident. It's true that they only exist together like any set of opposites. But what people often don't consider is that those forces may not be symmetrical. You might have one opposite greater than the other in some way. And the way this the way this pans out with uh, physics and the, and the creation of the universe is that when the Big Bang happened, there was an asymmetry, a fundamental asymmetry, where some areas of the cosmos expanded more quickly than others, some areas cooled off more quickly than others, and so what you end up with is this sort of random pattern um, in the cosmos, and you can see that in the uh, in the in the um, uh, background microwave background radiation maps that they have, you can see how it, it wasn't perfectly symmetrical as the energy expanded uh, and everything. It, it happened in this way that was irregular. And the interesting thing about that is it's exactly the asymmetry. It's exactly this irregularity that allowed for the cosmos and for life to develop. Because if it hadn't been that way, if things would have been expanding in exactly the same way in every direction, you wouldn't have time to allow these areas of space to cool, for the forces to balance out, for a stasis to be created that allows for planets and stars and life. You wouldn't have it at all without this asymmetry. And there's something like that that Hawking will talk about, and we'll see this in a bit, <coughs> Excuse me, when he talks about these... Um, electron and anti-electron pairs he said in some cases they will join together and disappear again in most cases but in some instances one of those one of those pairs the anti-electron or the electron will escape and so you have you have an asymmetry then right something hasn't hasn't gone back into the nothingness but it's escaped and now it's now it's sort of added to reality and you and this is how reality forms this is how you have something instead of nothing because you have this asymmetry and if we can speak philosophically about it we might say that uh god is that's a word i i would like to use here the thing i call potentiality its opposite is actuality its opposite is the here and now the physical material world and you can imagine if potentiality is god and actuality is material being. Clearly, there's an asymmetry there. There's always more potential than there is actual. There's always, you know, if, if we consider God to be infinite, clearly there's an asymmetry between an infinite God and a finite cosmos. And Hawking and, and Kaku are pointing this out. This asymmetry exists among opposites, and it's actually it's it's fundamentally important. So just to recap, we don't know what dark energy and matter is. They're undetectable. They don't interact with matter in a way we understand. They have no, they have no charge. In the case of dark energy, no mass. They are, for all intents and purposes, nothing. They are the nothing in opposition to the cosmos. 
which creates the stasis of being. So dark matter is, is said to hold everything together, to hold the stars and planets and cosmos together while dark energy pushes it apart. And this balancing act that we're talking about, this stasis, this, this force between opposites is what gives us the, the time that we need to exist. It's what gives us our moment, uh, you know, the, the moment where we make the cosmos conscious and living. All right, he goes on, he says, most of the universe is hidden from us in the form of dark matter and energy. He says, perhaps evidence for the theory of everything lies hidden in this invisible universe. So when he says most of the universe is hidden from us, to me that sounds like most of the universe is nothingness. And perhaps the solution to the theory of everything lies in the nothingness, in the invisible universe. And this reminds me of a quote that Alan Watts said we covered in uh, the Alan Watts episode. He said, the secret to the whole thing is to be found in nothingness. Yeah, that's right. The secret to the whole thing, you know, the thing that reconciles um, gravity and, uh, and quantum mechanics. Isn't that amazing? He says, dark matter is invisible, yet it holds the Milky Way galaxy together. It has weight and no charge. So you have to understand that charge. Uh, charge is how things interact with each other. Charge is how magnets interact with each other. It's how electrons interact with each other. So no charge means no interaction. And something that doesn't interact with matter, it basically, that basically means it doesn't exist, right? Something that doesn't interact, as far as you're concerned, doesn't exist. And that's a way for us to think about nothing and realize that we're immediately wrong about that. The fact that it doesn't interact might mean that it doesn't have any causal power. It doesn't mean that it isn't a thing that exists somehow. Call it nothing if you want, but it's something. And that brings me to my next section, which is called No Such Thing as Nothing. All right, so Kaku asks... Where did everything come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? Great questions. He says, in the quantum theory, there is no such thing as absolute nothing. We have seen that absolute blackness does not exist. Even black holes are really gray. Similarly, when solving the quantum theory, we find the lowest energy is not zero. For example... You cannot reach absolute zero because atoms in their lowest quantum energy state st are still vibrating. Similarly, you cannot reach a zero energy state quantum mechanically because you still have zero point energy. That is the lowest quantum vibrations. A state of zero vibration would violate the uncertainty principle since zero energy is a state of zero uncertainty which is not allowed. All right, so this idea of absolute zero, if you don't know, it's the coldest temperature could possibly be. And the way that they define that is that, that heat is, um, is molecular motion. You know, you know that. You heat up your cup of water in the microwave. When you take it out, what's changed? The molecules are moving around like crazy. You've added a bunch of energy to that water, and we call that heat. So what happens if you, 
if you quiet down all the quantum vibrations, if you can get everything to just hold still for a goddamn second, if you could do that, we would be at absolute zero. We would have no molecular motion and no heat. And what, what Kaku's telling us here is that state of absolute zero is not possible. There's always, fundamentally, quantum vibrations. You cannot get rid of that, even in a vacuum. There is no such thing as nothing. There's no such thing as zero energy. You're always going to have vacuum energy. You're always going to have zero point energy. You're always going to have something, even, even when you think you've got nothing. So the thing that you point to and say that is nothing, the vacuum, is not. And he says, so where did the Big Bang come from? Most likely, it was a quantum fluctuation in nothing. I mean, what? Where did the Big Bang come from? Most likely, it was a quantum fluctuation in nothing. Clearly, with that sentence, we cannot deny that what physics means by nothing is not nothing. It's potentiality. It's whatever it is that allows for something to come from nothing. It's whatever it is that allows for material reality to come into being, for matter and energy to exist in a, in a, in a, a space-time continuum, in something like, like what we're familiar with. You know, something from nothing. So nothing is a thing that electron and anti-electron pairs can pop out of. Nothing is a thing that's frothing with quantum activity. And also, nothing is a thing that's capable of fluctuating such that it will create the cosmos, that it will create the Big Bang. So whatever nothing is, it has all those properties. Does that sound like nothing to you? It sounds a little bit more like God to me. I think that's very interesting. Nothingness is a thing subject to quantum fluctuations and a thing containing the potential for material reality. Unbelievable. That is not nothing. All right, so Kaku goes on, he says, even nothing or a pure vacuum is frothing with matter and antimatter particles, continually jumping out of the vacuum and then collapsing back into the vacuum. This is how something came from nothing. Man, this is how something came from nothing. Kaku is overturning, you know, generations of, of Aristotelian empirical science and philosophy by saying this is how something came from nothing. Then he says, Hawking called this the space-time foam. That is a foam of tiny bubble universes continually bubbling up and disappearing again back into the vacuum. But once in a while, one of these bubbles does not disappear back into the vacuum but continues to expand until it inflates and creates an entire universe. So why is there something rather than nothing? Because our universe originally came from quantum fluctuations in nothing. <laughs> Motherfucker, that's, that's something. That is something. What a statement. I mean, the hair stands up on my arms. So just like the, the electron and anti-electron pairs can jump out of the out of the nothing. Hawking says entire universes can jump out of the nothing. 
Most of the time, most of the time, they just join together and disappear again. But every now and then, a bubble, a bubble floats away and becomes you know, a, a self-standing universe that came from the nothing. And then the last, last bit in this category, he says, the universe itself will eventually die. According to the second law of thermodynamics, everything in a closed system must eventually decay, rot, rust, or fall apart. The natural order of things is to decline and eventually cease to exist. Okay, so it's a little bit, a little bit of a depressing thought, but um, he's talking about entropy. I just took a sip of coffee. I can tell you, it's not as hot as it was when I first when I first brought it back down here. And the reason is that energy is constantly, you know, uh, spreading out, and the same thing happens with, um, you know, with heat. And energy, and so eventually, all of the heat and energy is going to run out. Everything will die and fall apart. And where I want to, where I want to grab a hold of this is where he says, "The natural order of things is to decline and eventually cease to exist." <clears throat> so what I want to, what I want to ask you is, what does that mean? What does cease to exist mean, given all of this conversation we're having about nothing and something? Cease to exist seems to be ceasing to be something. So we might have said before we started this conversation that cease to exist means that it's nothing. It turned into nothing and it's, and it's inconsequential and it doesn't matter. It has no properties. It has no existence. It's nothing. But is it? What does cease to exist mean if nothing is something? It seems to me that to cease to exist means to revert back to the potentiality where you came from. It's some idea a bit like reincarnation. The Hindus would say your Atman returns to Brahman. Something like that. Cease to exist means to revert back to what you were before you were, before you were born. You know, To revert back to the potentiality from which you came. That doesn't seem like nothing. To cease to exist is not the same thing as nothingness. And that brings me to the next section, which we're going to call God and Physics. So Kaku says, Scientists are often reluctant to admit that there are some things outside of the realm of science. For example, it is impossible to disprove a negative. These concepts are not testable and hence not decidable. They're outside of the province of science. Okay, so disprove a negative. So you might, you might have somebody who says, prove to me that God exists. And then that person might say, prove to me he doesn't. So prove to me he doesn't exist. See, that's disproving a negative, and it's impossible. You can't do it. You simply can't do it. And so all Kaku's saying here is that there are certain questions that are beyond the, the reach of science and that most scientists are uncomfortable with that. They think that, you know, the answers will come with, with you know, improvements in knowledge and, and you know, uh, improvements in technology and, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Eventually, we'll have all of the answers. But you can't disprove a negative. And I think where that plays into this conversation here is that when we're saying that nothing is something, that's not something that you can disprove either. 
You can't disprove that nothingness doesn't have some form of existence. And that's what I want to get to. That's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm aiming at. Nothingness seems to have some form of existence because it's, according to physics, it's that from which something can come, right? Something comes from nothing. It's responsible for the Big Bang. It's responsible for holding the cosmos together in a stasis that allows us our moment, our moment in the sun. Um, nothingness is hugely, hugely significant. It does seem to have a form of existence, but it's not clear how. It's not clear that it's a physical, that it's governed by space and time, that's a physical existence. So what does that mean? It seems to mean that there's more to existence than, the, than what we can measure um, and uh, model with physics and mathematics. There's something more to existence than what's manifest materially and energetically. We can call that nothing. We can call that God. You can call that whatever you want. That doesn't, that doesn't take away its existence. It doesn't, it doesn't disprove that it, it has some form of existence. All right, so now Kaku is going to start changing. There's just kind of an interesting bit here where he starts talking more about God in ways I didn't expect. But he does say this, and I want to, I want to hone in on it. He's talking about the, the traditional philosophical proofs of the existence of God. And so many philosophers have talked about it, like here's different reasons why you shouldn't believe that God exists. Um, and uh, Thomas Aquinas has most famously put them together. And so there's a list of these proofs of God. And one of them, one of them is called the ontological proof. And it was one that uh, philosophers had a difficult time picking holes in. So let me just describe to you what, um, what this is. And I'll use Kaku's own words. He says, God, by definition is the most perfect being imaginable. But one can imagine a God that does not exist. But if God didn't exist, he would not be perfect. Therefore, he must exist. So this is the ontological argument for the existence of God. So God is the most perfect being imaginable. So if God doesn't exist, he wouldn't be perfect. So he has to exist. That may not hold as much as much uh, weight today as it did for most of you know human history, but it was a really difficult argument to get around. Now I have my own I have my own problems with this, but I want to finish Kaku's thought. He says it wasn't until the 19th century that Immanuel Kant found a flaw in the ontological proof. To be perfect does not necessarily imply that something must exist. All right, so we'll, we'll get into this here. So, so something that doesn't necessarily exist, but's perfect. I mean, I can think of things like platonic forms, you know? So Plato will talk about that. Um, you know, even, uh, even geometrical shapes, as an example, platonic solids. So Plato will talk about what shapes are possible, and, you know, he'll, he'll give you a certain, certain limited number of uh, three-dimensional shapes that are, that are possible and uh, perfect, and those things don't exist anywhere in the world. That's why they're forms. Like there's no, there's no such thing in nature as a perfect, you know, three-dimensional whatever uh, polygon or whatever that matches one of these forms. Everything is um, everything in the real world is some imperfect version of that. And this is it goes right into the theory of essences that Plato talks about. It's like you know uh, the essence of a dog or the essence of a table or something is that which all 
dogs and tables have in common. It's like this, this perfect idea of a dog or perfect idea of a table. And you can see in reality all different forms of dogs and tables. But what you don't see in reality is the perfect form that you're, that you're comparing this to to say, yeah, that's a dog. Yeah, that's a table. So these are perfect things. They exist in a way. They exist in, in Plato called what he calls the world of forms, noose. So they exist in a way. So to be perfect doesn't necessarily mean something exists physically in the here and now. Mathematics is another example of this. You know, we can see, we can apply math, and we can interpret math all around us all the time, but math is this perfect thing that exists in this ethereal place, this realm of our minds. It doesn't exist in the real world. But here's where I want to push back on this flaw in the ontological proof. I think it's probably true that to be perfect doesn't necessarily imply that something exists. But if God is supposed to be the most perfect being, wouldn't, wouldn't the most perfect idea of God, the most complete, be something that has existence and non-existence? Right? If God exists or if God doesn't exist, those things seem to be very different than saying God might exist and not exist. I know that sounds strange, but if God, if God includes both existence and non-existence, don't you think that's more complete than one or the other? So I think it is. I have, I have no doubt in my mind. It's more complete and so more perfect. By encompassing both, it's more perfect. So what does it mean that God both exists and doesn't exist? This idea of not existing is the idea of nothingness. God exists and doesn't exist. And you might think that means that God is real and not real, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God exists, and whatever it is that nothingness is, whatever it is that we're talking about here when we're talking about nothingness, God exists that way too. It exists, it's something, and it's nothing. And by nothing, I don't mean what we normally intuit nothing to mean. I mean what physics is saying it means, what Kaku and Watts are saying it means. God is something and nothing. Both. He exists and doesn't exist. Both. God's existence is in both realms. All right, then Kaku says, As a child, I was raised as a Presbyterian, but my parents were Buddhists. These two great religions have in turn two diametrically opposed points of view concerning the Creator. In the Christian church, there was an instant of time when God created the world. However, in Buddhism, there is no God. The universe had no beginning or end. There is only timeless nirvana. So how can we reconcile these points of view? The universe either had a beginning or it didn't. There is no middle ground. But actually, the multiverse theory gives a radical new way of viewing this contradiction. Perhaps our universe did have a beginning, as mentioned in the Bible. But perhaps Big Bangs are happening all the time. Perhaps these universes are expanding in a nirvana of hyperspace. So our universe is a three-dimensional bubble floating in a much larger space of 11-dimensional nirvana out of which other universes continually arise. 
Thus, the multiverse idea allows one to combine the Christian mythology with the nirvana of Buddhism in a single theory that is compatible with known physical laws. So I think that's an interesting, an interesting idea for him to tackle, an interesting thing even to include in the book, if I'm being frank. But I think it's interesting. Now, he does say that there is no God in Buddhism, which is something that I don't agree with. You know, His parents were Buddhists, mine were not, so maybe we should de- defer to Kaku on this. But I, I disagree that there's no God in Buddhism. Uh, in fact, when he says the universe had no beginning and no end, that there's only timeless, timeless nirvana, then I would suggest that the timeless reality that you're describing, that it wasn't born and doesn't die, that thing that you're calling nirvana, that's God. That's there's just there's just no two ways about it to me. But I want to focus on something else. I want to focus on this idea of nothingness and this idea of how nothingness has a has a form of existence or a means of existence that's not like the material world. We call it nothing, not because it doesn't exist, but because it doesn't exist like everything else. And I think this little description gives us a way of maybe thinking about that. So the 11-dimensional nirvana here, the reason it's 11-dimensional, by the way, is because string theory um, says that the math behind string theory says that reality is either 10 or 11-dimensional. Now, we're, of course, we're familiar with four of those dimensions, the the three dimensions that we exist in, and the fourth dimension is time. So we kind of understand four of them, but according to string theory, there's 10 or 11. So Kaku says, so the 11-dimensional nirvana here becomes the inaccessible, unknowable ground of being. That's the way it looks to me. The nothingness, the non-being, from which all things can arise. This is this 11-dimensional reality. Nothingness implies higher dimensionality. Maybe that's what that's what we're dealing with. Nothingness implies higher dimension, dimensionality. A source surrounding and containing all of being. It is nothing only in the sense of being unexperienceable or inaccessible. And a good way of understanding that is, imagine you drew a a two-dimensional stick figure on a piece of paper with a two-dimensional box that it lives in. Imagine that that two-dimensional creature comes alive, and it can only move right and left, up and down in your little two-dimensional reality. It would have no way of experiencing you, the being standing outside of it in the third and fourth dimensions. You would be inaccessible. You would be unexperienceable. You would be nothing. That doesn't mean that you're nothing, though, does it? So perhaps we are this four-dimensional creature existing in this 11-dimensional reality. And all of the things that we call potentiality and God and dark energy and dark matter and everything that's unknowable and all the mysteries, maybe those things exist. Detached from us in this way, and yet we're nested in it. You know, we are one with this 11-dimensional reality and only believe ourselves to be separate from it. So at the same time, this 11-dimensional reality is the full structure of which our 4D reality is merely one limited perspective. And maybe that is what nothing is. And that brings me to my conclusion. So Kaku has told us some pretty amazing things. He points out that space-time is frothing with quantum activity, always, even when it's perfectly empty of matter, of gravity, 
of action or interaction. He tells us that even with no energy to excite them, quantum waves always maintain a minimum level of vibration, zero-point energy. It is as though nature fights against nothingness. Nature abhors a vacuum, as they say. As though nothingness is simply not permitted by physics. This is, of course, one way of looking at it. Another might be that what we call nothing is simply not nothing after all. It's not that nothingness is impossible. It's that nothingness is something. But what? Kaku gives us some hints at this. He tells us that nothingness maintains the stasis of the universe, right? We have these invisible, non-reactive forces called dark matter and energy. We do not know how they exist or why. We have no concrete knowledge of them, and yet they push and pull the cosmos into the state we find it. He also tells us that nothingness gives rise to pairs of particles directly from the vacuum. So nothingness does something here, even if proof of its existence remains elusive. But this isn't all nothingness does. Kaku tells us that fluctuations in nothingness were the cause of the Big Bang. What does this mean? It means that nothingness, whatever it is, can fluctuate. It's capable of dynamism. It vibrates with a continual force of energy that cannot be destroyed. And it holds the order of being together in a cosmic game of tug-of-war between dark energy and dark matter. It bends gravity to its will in the form of black holes, and it creates something from nothing. From nothingness arises pairs of quantum particles, from the void, and from nothingness arises an infinite stream of universes. All this to say that nothing is not nothing. It is more true to say that nothing is everything. It is the potential from which existence springs. It is a very real something. It is the counterpole to the material cosmos, its opposite, from which both somethingness and nothingness derive their existence. They are one thing, after all. And as with all opposites, we cannot have one without the other. The positive and the negative have equal existence. There can be no something without nothing. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.